I'm Parker Moss, Chief Partnership Officer at Genomics England, and you're listening to The G Word. Through the conversations we have on this podcast, we hope to share the benefits of genomic medicine with everyone. Now, genomics is a word that can trigger really strong responses, hope, fear, anger, and there's a lot of information out there, but it's not all accessible to non-experts. We want to talk more about this word, the G word, genomics. Now, today we have a really special guest, a doctor, a scientist, an entrepreneur, a Pulitzer Prize winning author, is Siddhartha Mukherjee. His book, which I've been reading in Italy this summer, is just about to come out in October. The book is called The Song of the Cell, an Exploration of Medicine and the New Human. We're covering some of the main insights from his book during this podcast and a few other scientific areas of research beyond. Siddhartha, welcome to The G Word. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, Siddhartha, you've got an incredibly busy life, and I'm going to just try to summarize all of the things that you do, just uh, for the sake of our audience at the start of this call. So tell me if I get this right. You are a professor at Columbia University. You were a former Rhodes Scholar, where you trained over here in England at Oxford. You trained at Harvard, also at Stanford, and also at the Dana Faber Institute. You trained first as an immunologist, and then as a stem cell scientist, and finally as a cancer biologist before becoming a medical oncologist where you still practice today in New York, um, in NYC, having previously been on the staff at MassGen in Boston. So you're a scientist, a doctor, you have many authoring prizes, including Pulitzer. You're an entrepreneur behind actually more startups than I could figure out in preparing for this call. You're also a husband to a wonderfully successful artist and sculptor in New York, a dad, and from what I understand, you also play jazz in a fusion band. Is there anything that I've missed out? No, except for the fact that you should you should see me trying to ride a bike or or try to find directions, um, which I'm extraordinarily poor at. Actually, I think at some point of time we'll find um, genetic markers that allow humans to find uh, directions, and I will almost certainly have a mutation in one of them or many of them. Um, you can put me in a place that I've been to a thousand times before, and I'll get lost. Um, well, Sid, I actually share that weakness for you, with you, and uh, in everything else, you make me and most other people look bad uh, by all of uh, your achievements. So maybe just to start off, you could explain to our listeners, how is it that you actually manage such a busy life? Uh, you are actually living really the, life, the lives of four people. Um, I'd love to hear what a typical Tuesday afternoon is like for you, or even a Sunday morning. Well, you know, there's no magic answer. I'm One answer is that I'm passionate about all of these things, so that's why I do them. I do them because I like them. I like to write. I like to see patients. I like my science, I, and we do a lot of it. And I like that science becoming, turning into medicines. Uh, about four or five years ago, I decided that, you know, a major thrust in my laboratory was going to be the creation of new medicines. And that's been very important because that's a different way of thinking about science. So we don't do science projects for the sake of science projects. We do science projects really to create new medicines and to bring them to humans. And that's what started the entrepreneurship journey. Now, I like to think about medicines. I like to think about human beings um, and their, you know, I like to help human beings and their suffering. And perhaps most most importantly, um, I like the idea that that 
you know, science can be so can be profoundly helpful um, in, 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 in all of this. A lot of the work is compartmentalized. So, you know, I'll spend two hours writing, three hours in the lab, one hour with patients or two hours with patients and the rest of the time sort of thinking or doing whatever else, I mean, normal things that human beings have to do. So, you know, it sounds like a lot, but, but the fact that they're so interconnected makes it actually part of a part of one project as opposed to six projects. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a ballet dancer who also happens to be, you know, making food at a restaurant. It's, it's all part of one whole. And, and I, I think that's what, that's what makes it seem as if I'm doing many things at the same time, whereas in fact, I'm doing one thing many times over. Well, I think that interconnectedness is the very reason you called your latest book The Song of the Cell, which is about the interconnectedness of, uh, of cellular biology uh, within the body. And uh, maybe we should just go straight into talking about your book. For the audience um, who haven't read your previous books, um, your first book was called The Emperor of the Maladies, um, which is really a biography of cancer. Your second book was A Gene, the Intimate History, um, and your recent book, Song of the Cell, Altogether, that's about 1,700 pages you've written. Um, I've read all of them. And I must say that your books are the most gifted um, present that I give people in my industry throughout. So oh, uh, I've recommended to many, many people. And I think this interconnectedness is one of the things that makes your writing style so attractive because um, you mix patient stories. You, you're very generous with mixing your personal stories. You talk about science, but also science history and the cultural um, kind of ancient history of science, both from India and also the ancient origins of Western medicine. So um, this seems to be a formula that has been successful for you and runs throughout the theme of those, um, runs throughout those three books. I'd love to hear a little bit about how how you mix all this together and, and why you think that makes it so successful for the very broad audience that you appeal to? Well, I think, Parker, the, the most important piece of that is fascia or the tissue of a book is something that you have to think about before you think about a book itself. What does the book seem like? What is the mood of the book? What is the, what is the tissue of it? What is the fascia of it? It's almost like looking at a human being and asking the question, what's the whole? before you start figuring out the parts. The way I started writing, I started writing, I, I, I've never formally been trained in writing, um, but the way I started writing is by saying that, you know, I will move in my writing between very personal stories, the stories of my own family, the stories of my own discoveries, between that, between very, you know, formal science with often contains, you know, a lot of jargon, big words. And also between between that and uh, the stories of patients. And so, and I and I won't compartmentalize them. It's not like one book is patients, one book is going to be about me and one book is going to be about the science and science writing. But all of this will be somehow blended together. And actually the hardest work for me in writing books is to find those connections, is to create that, that interconnectedness that makes a book whole. Uh, you know, there's a very famous uh, quote that the best technology is invisible. So a pencil is an incredible form of technology because you don't think about it. You just pick it up and you write. Uh, a hammer is a great piece of technology because you don't think about it. You just use it to bang a nail. 
if you have a piece of technology that is so complicated that you have to think about how to use it, where to use it, and what its application is, that's not you know that 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 becomes a, becomes a problem. Books are like that. Books are best when you move between spaces and forms of knowledge, personal knowledge, ancient knowledge, scientific knowledge, history, memoir, and so forth, without you, without the reader realizing it. I'm going to, I'm going to take you on a journey, trust me. Um, that journey will go through many places. Uh, we'll go through, you know, my own journey, memoir. Or we'll go through, we'll, you know, we'll span back a billion years in time when, you know, a, when a particular kind of cell appears. We'll move forward into creating new, um, new kinds of cells and potentially new kinds of humans. But trust me, you won't, you know, it, you, it'll, it'll all come out seamlessly uh, if the book is if the book is good. And it's those junctions, the junctions between those movements, those stories, that are the hardest to write. They take the longest to write, and they are the places where where my editors and publishers will really push the boundaries. Um, and that is, of course, very uh, important. They work the best when they're invisible, uh, like invisible technology. You won't know or you won't feel as if you moved through three billion years of time. If I can make you do that and still stay with me and trust me as your sort of guide to this, this cosmos or universe, whether it be cancer or genetics or cell biology, if you could, if you, if you, if I can keep your interest and trust, then then I've been successful as a writer. So th the hardest thing about writing a book for me is actually not so much the content because I'm intrinsically interested in the content. Uh, the hardest thing is is writing those little those junctional pieces that connect the book together. Interesting. So again, we come back to interconnectedness, which of course is such an important um, theme of. Um, of cellular biology, not just local, but long distance connectedness, as you described so well in your section on, on hormones. Um, so I have had so many sections of the book that I wanted to dip into. I've picked out a few that made the biggest impact of me, on me, and I just wanted to um, share those with the readers and, and get you to explain a little bit further. And I think really probably the first one is something that I know you have pinned to your office wall, which is the statement that a cell is a unit of life and physiology, but it is also the unit locus of disease. That seems to be a, a very important and fundamental insight. And I'd love you to just to explain the significance of that um, in the history of science and, and also to, to the construction of your book. Sure. Uh, you know, that statement comes really from Verkhaus, Rudolf Verkhaus' work. Uh, Rudolf Lokau was a pathologist. His book, Cellular Pathology, is probably one of the most important books in the history of, of medicine. Before Verkau, people were trying to advance or trying to understand unifying theories of medicine. And this has been a long quest. You know, is there, is there a way to think about medicine, you know, which is so diverse, or disease, which, diseases which are so diverse, you know, you have autoimmune diseases such as lupus, you have infectious diseases such as COVID, you have cancer, you have, you know, all these other diseases. And lots of people tried to explain these diseases, illnesses, using various theories. There were theories that, you know, that the psyche was the center of all of this. There were theories that, that, that of course, there were famous theories that, you know, religion or, or spiritual dissonance 
was was the center of all of this. There were theories that there, there were invisible particles called miasmas, uh, miasmata, uh, that were that were the center of all of this. And then we, as in Lewenhock and Hook and a whole of colorful characters who you'll meet in the book, began to discover the cell and the, figured out that in fact the whole human the human body and actually all animal bodies uh, and plant bodies are built out of these units. And these units are interesting because they are simultaneously, they're autonomous, they live by themselves, they're living units. They have agency, so they can, they can do things, they have functions, but they also live together. They live in communities, which of course is the reason that you and I are made out of billions of cells. And, you know, a small animal might be made out of 900 or 2,000. If the cell is the unit of us, uh, and if everything, all of us, is built out of cells, then what if normal physiology, you know, the things that we, that we, that the body does normally, our bodies do normally, is actually a consequence of cellular physiology. It's what cells do to make our bodies happen. It's our bodies don't happen by themselves. Our bodies don't happen magically. They happen because cells talking to cells, secreting substances, getting signals, making things happen, being functional is what makes normal physiology happen. That was the first insight. And then he reversed it. And he said, well, what if the opposite is also true? What if illness is actually, or if all illness is not some aberration of the psyche or some visitation of fate from God, but rather is a dysfunction of some cell in your body, a malfunction or an infection or a disruption of the way cells should normally be behaving. And in that second insight, he put together what I would call the first uh, modern theory of disease, that all diseases are fundamentally cellular diseases and cellular dysfunctions. And that's an incredibly uh, astonishing insight, which both of which normal physiology and abnormal physiology tra tracking back to the cell just really sets the stage for the birth of modern medicine. And that is what set the stage for the, the first section of your book. You talk about the individual cells and then cells as a system, then cells as a locus of disease, and then you talk about um, cellular medicine. And uh, that, that is kind of a, a large chunk of the kind of latter section of your book. And, but I think you make a very interesting observation at some point in the book where you say, well, of course, every antibiotic is a cellular medicine, um, a drug that relies on the distinctions between a microbial cell and a human cell. In a sense, cellular, cellular medicine is not new, uh, but it's being spoke a lot more today uh, with cell and gene therapy. So maybe you can um, explain to our listeners what has changed in recent years that has created so much excitement and enthusiasm, both from scientists and also the investment community in cell and gene therapy? Yeah, I mean, I think the um, I think for the longest time we were intervening on molecules resident in cells. So an antibiotic is a great example. It's a it it blocks a molecule that's essential for the life of a bacterial cell, uh, whatever that molecule might be. It could be a ribosome, which makes proteins. It could be the enzyme that makes a cell wall for a bacterium. And, and so forth. But more recently, we've started doing things that are actually very radical um, and very different. We're not 
just thinking about making small molecules that go and drug one piece or parcel of the cell, although those are still important. It's not that their importance has gone away. Recently, we've started doing things like putting cells into human bodies, growing the cells outside the body, and putting them back into the body, or um, changing the behavior of a cell in toto, um, such that a, a previously uh, an immune cell, which previously ignored a cancer, would suddenly start recognizing that cancer. So the more recent developments have been in changing the behavior of cells and implanting or transplanting cells. And in fact, you have gone further in your personal research than just uh, changing cells and reimplanting them in the body. I remember when we first met for lunch in London in 2018, you were telling me about some experiments that you were doing with Ronvel and monocytes. And I was really excited to hear that uh, discussed a little bit further in your book. Um, and in this particular case, you were making a chimera out of a monocyte and transforming it into something resembling a little bit more like a T-cell to fight cancers. And uh, uh, that is an absolutely fascinating idea. And it, it will give you a chance to talk about um, your life, not just as a scientist, but as an entrepreneur. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how that experiment and that company is going. Well, first of all, we've already dosed a few patients. So if, uh, in the three years uh, that since we had that conversation, that has grown into a real therapy. It has gone through FDA scrutiny, and uh, we are dosing patients. Uh, we, you know, we call them uh, CAR-Ms, chimeric monocytes, basically. The other, comp the other idea that we spoke about has been now published. Um, let me take a step back, actually. This is kind of an interesting step back. In a fundamental way, even though I wrote the book, The Gene, I sort of either willingly or unwillingly missed the gen genetic and genomic revolution. And by that, by saying that, I, what I mean is that I, I was always interested, obviously, in genetics and genomics. But my lab, um, as a, in my lab practice, that was never my primary interest. I was never interested in doing, you know, multi-genome sequencing and then computational stuff that comes with it, which I think is very important. It was just not interesting to me because I was more interested in, in the whole organism, in, in organismal biology. And a gene, as you know, is extraordinarily important. It's a carrier of information, but it's lifeless without a cell. A gene is a molecule. A cell brings it to life. And so my laboratory really focuses on things that are not genomic, but are, um, but are cellular. And the distinction is, again, that the fact that we, of course, are interested in genes and interested in what genes do and how they work, but we don't do a lot of, you know, multi-gene multi sequencing, uh, you know, the kinds of things that other people do very well, but, but we don't. Um, and so my thought was that rather than focusing on the genome, why not focus on cancer's physiology? So, so I, be, I began to think more and more about cancer as an organ and, and ask questions like, like any organ, you know, how does it, how does it consume nutrients? Um, what is its environment? Uh, how does it make a home for itself? How does it create uh, three-dimensional structures for itself? Why does it move around? Or how does it move around? And could those be new targets of therapy? So 
we, for instance, published a paper with Lou Cantley on how cancers metabolize sugar uh, in the presence of insulin. And what's interesting about that paper is that we believe that's also you know formed a company and is now in trials. Uh, we've dosed, we started uh, treating patients uh, with this uh, diet drug combination. Uh, the company is called Fiat, F-A-E-T-H. But uh, the, you know all of us believe that that we've sort of missed out on on using cancer metabolism as a locus of therapy. So that would be one example, but there are others. How fascinating. Maybe you could answer this. Uh, having lived on a cancer ward myself for five years, one of the most persistent uh, kind of patient-led uh, theories is that uh, sugar uh, is essential to the metabolism of cancer. And if you starve the body of sugar, that can uh, bring you back into remission. It's something that I've heard uh, doctor after doctor dismiss. Um, could there be some truth to this? Um, I, I think there's, there's a misconception here, which is that it is not, it's not, it, well, cancers certainly utilize sugars differently than normal cells. We know this from work done by Otto Warburg in, you know, in the early part of the 1900s. Um, but that doesn't mean that cancers, you know, that if you stop eating sugar, your cancer is going to go away or that eating too much sugar causes cancer. Those are two uh, misconceptions. What's true is that the pathways by which cancers consume sugar, um, and especially the pathways by which cancers sense sugars, which is through um, insulin, uh, the central hormone that coordinates sugar metabolism, those pathways can be potential targets for drug therapies. In the end, uh, you know, whatever diet you eat, if, you, if it contains carbohydrates, it will, in the end, convert those carbohydrates into sugars and cancers will eat them, uh, will, will consume sugars because all cells require sugar as, uh, as glucose as a central metabolite. So it's a misconception that you can, quote unquote, starve your cancer by not eating sugar. But it is not a misconception to say that you can target particular vulnerabilities that cancer cells have in their dependence on particular ways that they digest and sense sugar. Um, and those can be drugged, and those drugs can be successful if you can starve the cancer simultaneously. Um, and that's what, we're, that's what we're doing. So my recommendation is don't go on some crazy diet. That's not the way it seems that cancers work. Um, but more appropriately, there are scientific ways which we're now discovering by which the dependence of cancers on particular kinds of ways that they digest and utilize sugars can be made into vulnerabilities that can be exploited for the treatment of cancer. Okay, well, thank you for clearing that up. I think that will be of great interest to uh, the cancer patients that I know tune into this call. So my next question, I, I, I hope this works. I want to um, find a little bit of interconnectedness between the cellular biology the genomics that you mentioned just before, and then some of the, uh, I, what I thought was the most beautiful um, metaphor that you brought from kind of ancient Indian religion. Um, and so I'm going to read a quote from your book that I found very moving. So this was a quote about um, Yashodhara, um, the mother of Krishna, who was one of the major Hindu entities. And at one point she opened an infant's mouth because he had swallowed a clod of dirt. And when she pries his teeth open, witnesses the whole of the universe inside of him. 
the stars, the planets, the million suns, the whirling galaxies, the black holes. And then you, you make the connection that was each of our B cells carrying a reflected cosmos, the cognate reverse of every antigen in the universe. And what you're referring to here is antigen presentation, so important uh, for immune oncology and, of course, so highly connected to uh, genomics. This is being discussed a lot recently in the context of the so-called of kind of cancer therapeutic vaccine. Um, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on where you think we're going with MHC, with antigen presentation, and whether indeed you feel that um, sometime in the next five years, we may be able to recognize these, these new antigens and, and drug them. There are many questions in that, but let me just give you, let me just start with the historical perspective. The problem of antibodies, so as you know, antibodies are proteins that are generated in your body that, that can bind to viruses and bacteria floating in the blood or to cells, um, proteins that are outside cells. They have to be visible in the blood or in the lymph nodes and or in the tissues. And antibodies, you know, are like pitchforks. Um, they, in fact, they really resemble pitchforks. Um, and they go and, and attack them like missiles or like pitchforks and then summon a whole cascade of uh, other cells to come and kill the and other proteins to come and kill the bacterium or the virus or or a cell if it's a foreign for if it's recognized as a foreign cell now there was a big debate a huge debate um in the 1960s going on into the 1970s whether because the funny thing about antibodies is that how would you ever know every virus or bacterium that ever attacked you you know there's a new strain of flu that's going to come next winter and the question is, how would your body know, how would your uh, B cells, which make the antibodies, know that this was that this was a foreign object, this was a foreign virus? Similarly, for other viruses and bacteria. So, one proposal was that the the B cell had a a universe of everything uh, in its body, in itself, in its uh, genome, and that universe was being somehow deployed or parts of that universe were being deployed to kill the new strain of influenza or the new strain of, uh, of virus or whatever it might be, a foreign cell. But and this is like Krishna's clod of dirt, you know, that, that, that the B cell had the entire cosmos of everything that could possibly exist in the universe that would then, you know, when that thing came along, when that foreign body came along, the B cell would say, aha, here you are, and I'm going to now send out your, you know, send out my, the antibody from my repertoire to go to come and kill you. But of course, that doesn't make sense. I mean, how can how can a B cell, which how can any cell, have the in, the information about the entire cosmos, not just of bacteria that that exist in the world, but strains of influenza that haven't even been born yet, uh, that will only come in the future. That would that it just doesn't make sense. And the answer to that lies in the fact that B cells learn. And by learn, I really mean a, it is a Darwinian process by which they're selected. And the B cells basically take their genomes, their gen genes, rearrange them, and make, um, and make is a very important word here, they make a new antibody, a receptor that becomes an antibody 
against this new virus. And they learn, they have this adaptive capacity to thereby secrete an antibody against uh, a new pathogen. But it was, a, it was a fascinating discovery that the B cell did not contain a universe, but it rather learned a universe um, as it went, as, it, as, as a new pathogen came along. So that's the answer to the first part of your question. The second part of your question is, can we utilize this knowledge? T cells also have a variation of this. Um, can we utilize this knowledge to make uh, new cancer vaccines? And the answer is absolutely yes. If we can find determinants in cancer cells that are new, that are different from normal cells, uh, we could potentially uh, unleash the immune system on them. This has already been done or being done. And again, is the basis of, of one of the things that my lab is doing very actively, looking for these so-called neoantigens, things that are on cancer cells that are not on or inside normal cells, and then trying to unleash uh, an immune response against them. So if your lab is highly engaged in that, I presume that means you've turned a corner and you are getting much more involved in, in whole genome sequencing, which is actually the business of the Genomics England over here. And I would love to hear a little bit of um, your thoughts, given this is really a genomics podcast about where, um, where you feel not just whole genome sequencing, but also kind of other multi-omic technologies, transcriptomics, proteomics, and long read sequencing is, is um, playing into the lab of the future and whether you're exploring those other modalities together. Uh, we certainly are. Um, our, our take on this has been, as I said, we've entered genomics cautiously and carefully, not because, not again, not because I, I think it's, it's an incredibly important technology. It's just that, it's just it's a very crowded field and we and my laboratory does work that is adjacent and we use collaborators to do our our genomics so this work of discovering neoantigens for us is really is really proteomics um, and ai um, so we've engaged a lot of proteomics and ai folks to try to discover neoantigens and create therapeutics against them and we rely a lot on whole genome sequencing to once we found what this new antigen is we rely a lot on whole genome or or exome sequencing to figure out where in the genome it's coming from how is it, how it's expressed so that's transcriptomics uh, looking at the rna sequencing and and trying to figure out sort of the biology of why it's a new antigen and how new antigenic is it is it really present is it really only present in cancer cells but is it also potentially present in some other cell that we wouldn't want to unleash the immune system against something in the cancer cell that was also present in a vital normal cell. Okay, thank you. Well, I mean, this was not your book about cancer. You talked about many um, other areas of um, cellular biology. You talked extensively about insulin production in the pancreas. One of the areas that I found most moving in your book uh, was your discussion of cellular, cellular um, neurology and neuroscience. And um, you did something which I've noticed you've done throughout your books, which is you've infused not just the history of your patients, but some of your personal history and family history. Uh, you were very open that you um, experienced depression um, at, at one point um, in the past, and you very movingly described depression as a flaw in love. Um, and then you went on to make some very interesting insights about, um, about neurology and advances in that space. Wondering if you could uh, just talk a little bit about how your 
your lab engages in neurology today? You know, we're not a neurology lab. Um, we don't work on neurology. And I've really, one, one piece of uh, biography that you left out, uh, which is very little known actually, is that for a time I was actually trained in neurology and neurosciences. I worked in Connie Sepko's lab. Connie remains a very close friend and she's of course a great neuro, neuro, cellular neurobiologist. I wanted to write that section on depression not just to highlight some of my own history and struggles with uh, that illness, but also to describe to the to people the idea that depression is being more and more understood as a, a, a just as workout would have, not merely as a psychic disease or a psychic state, but really as a disease of cells and and cellular circuits. Um, and that's a very profound change because, again, you know, for years and years, you know, 50 years ago or 100 years ago, before our, our, our understanding, our deeper understanding of cellular science, uh, people would say depression is, you know, um, a set of circumstances, environmental circumstances that causes, uh, that causes your brain to feel or your body to feel bad about uh, many things. And it, 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 it is reflected in multiple behavioral changes, et cetera, et cetera. If you went and sat on a couch with Freud in, in, in Austria or in London, um, you know, you would, and you said that you were depressed, he would likely explore your traumatic history, um, potentially your sexual history, your, you know, behavioral history and so forth. And all that still remains true. But what I wanted to highlight in that section was that all of that said, it is also a disease of cells. Um, because every disease is ultimately, as going back to Virchow, is a disease of cells. And understanding that cellular basis of why mood is, reg or why and how mood is regulated, creates profound new forms of therapy, including antidepressants, uh, including a new antidepressants, which we haven't even begun to explore now. You know, we're just beginning to explore. People like Paul Greengard, who passed away, was very interested in, in new kinds of antidepressants, which would not just be serotonin inhibitors, which are most antidepressants today, serotonin uptake inhibitors like Paxil or, or Prozac, but new kinds of antidepressants that would act on these cellular pathways that, that regulate mood, but also potentially electrical circuits. You know, there are people, as I describe in the book, there are people in, in, in whom electrical stimulation of circuits is being used to re relieve the most profound forms of depression, recalcitrant depression. So there is a, there's a whole new universe of antidepressant therapies that are coming that rely very fundamentally on our understanding of how mood is regulated in, in the brain, um, what, what neurons regulate mood, what hormones regulate mood, how those neurons and hormones interact with each other and ultimately impinge on mood regulating cells and cell circuits, which I think would be very, is, is and would be very radical and very different from you know, the way we thought about depression 50 years ago. Yeah, I found that section of your book uh, fascinating and very moving. And maybe there's just one other section I, I really feel that I should call, call out, given that we are in mid-2022, um, which is your short but important section on COVID. 
Um, and you observe that there is a bit of a triumphalist narrative about how the scientific community have responded to COVID, but also there's a there was a very humbling reminder of our lack of preparedness. I, I know that um, COVID was a, a difficult time for you, both as a doctor and a scientist. I'd love to hear a little bit about your experience um, during these last two years and, and the impact it's made on you. Well, I think, um, as I said, the, the triumphalist narrative is is well known, you know, we knew we now know or knew enough about cell biology and vaccines and the immune system to be able to develop a vaccine against a disease a pandemic a global pandemic in really record time i mean you know the last the last vaccine that was dis, that was made this fast was made against mumps and it took if i remember correctly about 4 years um in this case we had a vaccine in 6 months to 8 months so that's the triumphalist narrative but the but but there's a there's a, another humbling narrative behind all of this. The humbling narrative, and I'll avoid, there are two humbling narratives. One humbling narrative is about politics and and preparedness, uh, global preparedness. That's a that's not a cell biological narrative, but it's an important one. Um, and that maybe at some future time, I've written about it in the New Yorker. You know how we didn't have enough preparedness in every way to be to meet a global pandemic. But there's also a humbling cell biological narrative that we need to, to understand, which is that even today, if you ask the world's experts on COVID, you will come to the realization that there are things about COVID that we still don't understand. Why is it that this virus uh, could cause this kind of very diverse pathology, you know, very mild infections in some people and extraordinarily um, lethal infections in others. What is long COVID anyway? Um, and why does a virus cause long COVID? Why did the immune system fail to clear COVID, which is a, a part of a family of viruses that causes common colds? And, you know, we, we take care of common colds by, you know, chicken soup. Um, and yet the, a, a distant cousin of that same virus um, was able to cause a global pandemic. Why? What, what, what about the immune system? Um, and the insights that have come out of that have been really quite profound. I'll give you just one example of them. It turns out that many people who suffered very severe COVID, for them, it was because COVID didn't trigger the appropriate immune response because COVID was able to subvert the, the immune response of some people. And, and what's really astonishing to me is that, is that the reason that COVID could subvert the immune response was that it was basically that these people had, a, had an autoimmune disease, previously unrecognized autoimmune disease that made them susceptible or vulnerable to COVID's ability to sub subvert the response. It's, it, it, it boggles the brain to figure that out, but it, but it turns out to be true that in fact, some of us, because of genetic reasons, and we'll know this as we sequence more and more genomes, some of us, because of genetic reasons, aren't able to play out the an early alarm bell uh, when, when a virus like COVID infects our body. Some of that is because of genetic reasons, some of that is because we have an autoimmune reaction, but we don't know it. We don't know it because such a virus didn't come before. 
And so it's a very humbling idea that there's so much more to be discovered about the immune system and about how the immune system reacts to viruses that we've sort of gone back to the drawing board and begun to ask questions. I mean, maybe this is true for many other viruses. We just didn't know it because, um, as I said, you know, it, there wasn't a global pandemic of this sort and there wasn't a focused attention um, of this sort on a single virus and how it interacts with the immune system. Maybe influenza causes, um, you know, some syndrome that we, we haven't really followed up on. Maybe, you know, Epstein-Barr virus causes a long Epstein-Barr virus syndrome that we haven't really fully understood yet because we haven't looked properly. So it's been a really humbling experience, I think, for cell biologists and immunologists in particular to realize that, you know, we thought we knew so much about the immune system. It was one of the most mature systems that we knew about. And then, and then now discovering that, in fact, we don't know everything about it and many, we don't know many things about it. Yeah, that, that's a, a fascinating explanation. And it's an area, actually, that Genomics England has been very involved in. I can share some papers afterwards, but we we did what we think is one of the world's largest um, host sequencing programs. Um, yes, I'm very aware of it, yes. Aware of that. Wonderful. And, and we found some interesting features, uh, interferon um, alleles, which were very different and drove some susceptibility and also severity of response differences between different... Um, and, and, uh, and the fact that's very interesting, Parker, is that you know, this is what makes science very satisfying, is that, you know, you come at it from a genomics angle, or rather Genomics England comes at, comes at it from a genomics angle, immunologists come at it from an immunological angle, you know, I come at it from a cell biological angle, and all of these angles seem to be converging. They seem to be converging on, for instance, proteins like the interferons and, uh, and the interferon response, uh, early interferon response as being one of the predictors of why um, people, you know, have severe or not severe COVID. The fact that these very three, three very different approaches or four very different approaches really converge on the same idea really gives credence to how science works and, and, and also gives credence to the idea that, 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 the, that the thinking of the science is probably right. Which comes back to your beautiful book titles with the song of the cell and the interconnectedness. So just a few quick fire questions um, as we begin to wrap this up, because there are so many other things I'd love to ask you about. Um, first of all, um, in a footnote in your book, uh, you gave a hint towards a new edition of the Emperor of Maladies. Um, can, can you give us a little bit more of a taste of what might be coming? Well, you know, I think that um, broadly speaking, obviously 10 years have passed, a little more than 10 years have passed since the publication of the book, and we've made many advances. There are advances in prevention, in early detection, and in treatment. Uh, in prevention, we've begun to identify new potential ways that we can think about cancer and preventing cancer. The whole idea of, of inflammation, obesity as being potential, uh, I would say sort of internal carcinogens um, is, a, is, a, is a fascinating idea. Uh, we all, always thought about carcinogens as chemicals or things that came from outside, but that, that your body's internal milieu might, might be pro-carcinogenic or pro-cancerous. Um, is a new idea, and there's been a lot of work done on that, and, and work continues to be done on that. So in early detection, again, this is an area where genomics plays an enormous role in not only classifying patients and screening them, 
for instance, you know, finding genes or combinations of genes that put you at high risk for breast cancer, whether those patients should be screened more aggressively for early breast cancer or ovarian cancer and other cancers, and also the possibility that, that we could use genetic techniques, um, such as, uh, you know, when cancers spill their gene genetic material into the blood, uh, could we pick, pick, up, pick those up and thereby uh, identify cancers in an early stage and what that would do um, um, as we move forward in cancers. And in the treatment space, um, in the treatment space, um, you know, there's been a lot of, um, obviously the biggest advance has been, I think, in immunology and in immu immu immune system detection of cancer. So that's just a, that's just a brief taste of how, you know, these, these chapters will be written out, but of course, uh, you know, they're not going to be written out like, you know, like a, like a, like a textbook, but rather uh, as the emperor of maladies is written sort of in a series of stories, stories of patients, stories of, of, of people um, in these, in these three very broad spaces, prevention, early detection and, and treatment of cancer. Well, I will be going back through the whole book when you bring out the second edition. I read it about eight years ago, and I definitely need a refresher. Um, and another thing you hinted about, um, which uh, I wasn't aware of actually until finishing The Song of the Cell, is that this is a, these three books are part of a quartet. Um, explain that final bit of interconnectedness to us. Uh, well, I think um, the last book is going to be in the quartet is going to be about uh, metabolism, longevity, uh, aging, and death. I have the, the book is finished, of course, but in the middle of sort of you know publicizing this book, and so I haven't had the brain space to think about the fourth book. But I will start writing it. I think maybe in a month, uh, maybe in a month or two, once I've sent out uh, a couple of uh, important scientific papers from from the lab. Well, it's clear that these books pour out of you. It's remarkable that you're already, um, you haven't even launched um, your third book and you're already planning uh, your fourth one. So um, you mentioned before early detection, and this is being much talked about um, in the UK because, uh, as I know you're aware, um, we are running a major 140,000 person uh, trial with Grail's technology. The NHS, not, not Genomics England, but we're following it closely. And I, I suppose as a doctor, I would just love to hear your vision of the future. Can you see a time in the next five years where every adult every year will take a blood test and we'll be looking for methylation markers um, to look for early signs of burden of cancer? Well, I think that, um, I think the, the, the broad answer is yes. Uh, but the narrow answer is that it, it's going to take a, it's going to take very heavy lifting, and I'm very proud of the NHS and and its efforts to do this because it requires a whole system to achieve this, and and it really requires a centralized system like the NHS. You know, there are many, many, many questions that will have to be answered. For instance, is it true that there are some cancers that are detected in the blood? which will never become real cancers. They're just going to sit there and never do anything to you. Will this technology save lives? Um, will this technology over-detect cancer and thereby cause, you know, all sorts of extra uh, work um, and, you know, the economic consequences of the work? Or will it be the opposite? Will it be a, a transformative technology in which, you know, we detect cancers at a stage where you know they can be curable by just cutting them out how accurate is the technology how 
quickly um, can it detect uh, the cancer, but most importantly, can it tell us where the cancer is? You know, you can detect a cancer mutation in the blood, and then you go searching um, for where the cancer is. Um, what if you find the wrong place? Uh, what if you, how certain can you be uh, that, that that cancer is the one that's uh, causing uh, the, 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 the or triggering the detection? So I'm, I'm, I'm very excited about the study, um, but I know that there's a, there, there are many sort of what I would call narrow roads to cross before we can make a broad uh, announcement that this is going to be a mechanism by which we can detect cancer early. Okay, um, I only have two questions left for you. Um, my penultimate question is really something for many of the cancer participants um, of the Genomics England program who I know will be tuning um, into this and these are people often living with cancer today or um, parents of children with cancer. Um, and I would be very interested to hear what you think um, should make the cancer patient of today hopeful for the future. Well, I think all of these things, you know, prevention, early detection, the use of immune therapy, the birth of novel drugs, potentially the birth of combination targeted drugs should make patients hopeful. We are trying, I think, our best to understand, but also to now to, to use that understanding to treat cancer. We've gone from genomics to cell biology to, to, uh, to sort of organismal biology of, of cancer. Um, and I think that is yielding new drugs that uh, we hadn't seen before. So I'm super excited about it and I'm eager to learn uh, about sort of, you know, what the next steps are. I feel the same way. And I, I must say that um, I think I would really commend um, all three of your books to um, patients of cancer and rare disease or any other disease out there, because as well as um, educating any reader of any um, level of scientific training about the, um, the history um, and the scientific nature of the disease, it also, I think, communicates very well to the reader the kind of the white heat of the furnace of energy from scientists like you, Siddhartha, who are working um, day and night to cure these diseases. And I think sometimes being on a cancer ward can be a lonely place, um, and it is encouraging to know that there are people like you working long hours um, to try to change the way we can address these diseases. So on behalf of all of the cancer patients and the rare disease patients that we represent, thank you so much for all of your energy and investment um, in this space. It, it is truly a remarkable story. Well, thank you very much. And I, you know, I, I on, on my end, all I can say is that I'm really excited about what Genomics England is doing. I'm excited about this NHS collaboration with Grail. And, um, you know, I think this is the kind of thing that it re we, we require these kinds of massive pushes to fight this complex of nefarious diseases that, that you know, have plagued human beings since the very birth of humankind. So um, I'm happy to be part of the journey. Thank you. Well, we are certainly working hard on it over here as well. And my very last question to you, which I, I ask all of the people that I speak with, um, who would you recommend I speak next um, to on the G word? Well, you know, a couple of people come to mind. Um, I'm, I, I don't know Bert Vogelstein personally uh, well, but Bert's been there from the inception of, of genomics for cancer. He was among the first to discover cancer genes um, and among the first to discover the fact that cancers 
didn't just sort of arise out of nowhere, but sort of marched uh, slowly, progressed slowly towards um, towards cancer. So um, a bird comes to mind. Uh, Ruslan Mezditov, the uh, immunologist at Yale, comes to mind. Um, he's been exploring the innate immune system. And his wife, a very accomplished scientist, Akiko Iwasaki, who's also in the book, um, an expert on COVID, um, comes to mind and the genomics of COVID. She's running, I think, one of the most fascinating long COVID studies that I've, I've, I've uh, encountered. And finally, it's sort of someone from your own neck of the woods. Uh, Nick Lane comes to mind. Uh, he's not a genomicist uh, in, your, in your sense of the word, uh, but he explores evolution um, from the birth of, of very early life forms um, to questions about sort of what is life, how is life created, what, was the, what, what were the earliest forms of life. And I, I interviewed him for my book and found him fascinating about sort of some of these questions. So um, those are some names I would throw out. Those are three wonderful suggestions. Thank you so much, Siddhartha. And for my listeners, that's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening to this discussion about the G word and for joining us on this journey to highlight and debate the implications of genomics as it comes to the mainstream of healthcare and society. If you have any views on these topics or have a person in mind you'd like us to interview, do please write to us at podcast at genomicsengland.co.uk. We really appreciate your support. And most of all, I really appreciate your time today, Siddhartha. Thank you so much for joining us on The G Word. Thank you, and thank you, and good luck. <laughs>